Welcome to the Big Picture with Parky Podcast. This is a series of podcasts where we will discuss a wide variety of topics and provide a rather different perspective from our experiences serving UK customers at NatWest. My name is Duncan McCabe from the UK Corporate FX Sales Team. Today, I'm joined by Richard Turner from the Financial Institutions FX Sales Desk, Neil Parker, our FX Market Strategist, and we welcome back yet again Ben Nicklin from our FX Structuring Team. In our last podcast, we talked about the evolution of market data releases. In this instalment, we are going to discuss large market moving non-data related events. And so, you know, when we think about big market events, I'm thinking UK's exit from the exchange rate mechanism in 1992, the 2009 financial crisis, the Swiss National Bank event in 2015, the UK referendum in 2016, and most recently, uh, the COVID crisis in 2020. Neil, can I hand over to you to give uh, some high-level details on each of those and your thoughts around that? Yeah, so if we look at 1992, the the exchange rate mechanism and and, and the UK's exit out of it, I mean, that was to a degree a slow-moving car crash. But when the exit actually came... Uh, it came very quickly. So there were efforts to try and shore up confidence in Sterling over the course of many months. But then we had that Black Wednesday and the UK's exit from the ERM thereafter. Uh, and that after a lot of central bank intervention that proved ultimately fruitless. So the, the, that was uh, at a time, and even it it precludes my employment in the financial industry, but that was at a time when the market was much less developed and therefore the market moves were absolutely enormous. And also, it was was badly uh, acted out by the authorities because they they effectively gave markets a one-way ticket. They they, they were saying, we will defend the, the currency. So they gave markets a a buyer of last resort. So the markets could act regardless of, of the um, uh, the consequences, knowing that there was a limitation to the UK's ability to defend its own currency. Now, if we roll the clock forward to 2008, 2009 and the financial crisis, that was very different. And the reason it was different is because it wasn't a localised event, it was global. And because it was global, the the ability of monetary authorities to limit the damage, the ability of governments to limit the damage was exposed. And consequently, what you saw there was much greater volatility across markets, much greater damage done, um, predominantly because there, there was actually a collective failure of credit standards. You know, that's where it, uh, it, it came from. That, that, that's what occurred. Now, 2015 and the Swiss National Bank. You know, now, that is, is the best evidence of a self-inflicted, almost fatal wound. Because the Swiss National Bank had spent months, quarters and years saying the 120 peg in Euro Swiss was basically a central pillar of their monetary policy strategy. In fact, two days before ending the peg, they they were repeating exactly those same words. So when that came, 
the reason that that did so much damage in in euro swiss and for a long time in terms of um the the financial community is because everybody was utterly unprepared for it so you've got three separate events there where they were unprepared for now 2016 in the uk eu referendum is probably the first time where we saw markets trying to price for an unexpected event because of being conditioned by those other events previously. And and what you saw there was much more sophistication in terms of the response by financial institutions and also by corporate clients, because they knew that it it wasn't a coin flip, but they knew that there was a risk that the UK would vote in the other way to which they were prepped for, and consequently they wanted to take some protection against that other event happening. Now, if we roll the clock forward to 2020 and coronavirus, that just reminds us that not all things are predictable. Not all things can be prepared for. But if you are rigid in your thinking about markets, then you risk being caught out. So that's a very quick synopsis of those sort of five events, four or five events that have informed markets and informed the way in which markets trade and the way in which markets prepare for unexpected outcomes. I quite like that summary, Parky, you know, not least because I think it highlights how quickly not just investors, but 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 you and I, I the, the public have had to adapt with these, these so-called one-off events. And, um, you know, uh, the... We were talking uh, amongst ourselves before this podcast, you know, as to what was interesting with regards to one-off events and unforeseen circumstances. And I think the overriding kind of message that that is is prevalent amongst all of these these kind of historical uh, events is that, you know, as human beings, we we invariably underprice risks, right? Um, Global financial crisis was, was was one such episode where Nobody in their right mind thought that, uh, you know, a U.S. institution, specifically Lehman Brothers, would ever renege on their, their, their ability to, to pay back other institutions or, or, or the other counterparts. It was just unheard of, right? Uh, and e- this, this was even taking into consideration events in the 20s and 30s in the U.S. when, when banks, savings and loans deposits, et cetera, went um, awry. I was going to say something else then. Um, so, you know, what can we take from these is, is I think, the, the, the important thing going forward is, is um, you know, what do we learn, right? And we're seeing it now with, let's, let's talk global financial crisis. We quickly changed regulation such that institutions were better prepared, better capitalised, such that we didn't have runs on banks that we saw, Right. Um, so banks have to hold a lot more capital now to prevent um, savers showing up on the doorstep, trying to withdraw all their money at once and obviously causing a, a collapse on banks, right? So we see, we see these changes that are making financial markets safer. However, and you, you, you kind of mentioned it towards the end of the, the opening summary there, we still get these, these one-off events, i.e. COVID, right? Um, it, it would be very interesting to hear from, from you, Ben, uh, p- particularly looking at these, these market dynamics of, of how people do prepare and how they've changed in terms of prep 
going into yeah. or even afterwards after these events yes you're right that um as each crisis unfolds um the market and the regulators react to it but very often the next crisis is different from the last in fact that's usually the case um and so if we've learned nothing and i, I like to think that we haven't learned nothing it is that these crises are part of the landscape there's something that we have to live with um, and if we have to live with it, then we need to be making hedging and investment decisions that are consistent with their existence. Um, and so that means preparing for both outcomes if it's a binary event um, or it means preparing, preparing for extreme outcomes um, where the, the horizon is apparently um, innocent and, and empty of, of landscape um, because it's these extreme events um, can have a serious and sometimes fatal consequences for a corporate business or, or, or a fund or an in investment organisation. And so it's just prudent to be uh, preparing for these um, and acknowledging their, the, the, the fact that they they've, have always been and they, they will always be. Um, and um, that, that we saw... Certainly, coming into the more recent of these events, for example, the the UK EU referendum, um, we started to see um, more of an approach whereby the the perhaps the expected out the safe outcome might not be the one that eventuates, and and how will we change our policy and our hedging and our investment to to react to that? So, um, I, I think that that is probably the the, the the main lesson that can be drawn from all this is, is not so much that these events can be forecast, um, their timing or their existence. It's the fact that they do exist and we have to live with them and deal with them and, and, and respond accordingly. And Parker, do you, do you think that, you know, this is a kind of strange way of looking at it, but, but you know, because of what's happened recently, COVID-19, i.e. something that nobody was prepared for, do you think that actually there is scope now for people, businesses, institutions to kind of conduct scenario analysis going into, you know, financial planning, looking ahead to the future as to how they maybe diversify some of things, you know, things like supply chains, et cetera, which we're seeing a lot of now, right? A lot, a lot of people uh, imported goods from China specifically. Um, now we're starting to see a shift away from certain countries to others so there is diversification in that supply chain for example yeah and, and i think we can look back again to the 2008-2009 financial crisis and say that, that there was a diversification there but that was in terms of the financial supply chain and, and so this coronavirus crisis will undoubtedly prompt businesses to look at their business resilience now that that already ought to have been in situ because if you think back to the fukushima nuclear reactor disaster in japan that highlighted a problem in the auto industry in terms of the supply chains there and led to a, to, to a correction now it would seem as if that that has been a lesson well learned because you now see much more widespread parts distribution networks than you had prior to that so there's there's again another example but i i think 
Ben's point is absolutely critical here. You will never be able to remove risk because what you're looking at is what's happened in the past, not predicting what's happening in the future. If you could predict what's happening in the future, then basically you wouldn't you, you wouldn't be doing the job that you're doing. So we're not looking at those things. Um, but but yeah, ultimately, I think what we're what we're saying here is that markets are trying to learn, but they're learning off of incomplete information. Dunks. Yeah, just sort of, I'm trying to contextualize all these. We've talked about all these big events, and, and, and we can. People have written textbooks about these historical events already, so we could we could talk for hours. But you know, zooming in on on the currencies aspect and the impacts they had, I, they if you're going and and looking at the the impact that would have on on the on the corporate community, you know, Swiss National Bank, Euro Swiss moved. 29% there or thereabouts from the high to the low in one day. Um, COVID crisis within within a couple of weeks, 13 odd percent lower in, from a high to a low in, in sterling dollar. And then, uh, you know, the next day in, in, in Brexit, when, uh, following the, sort of the UK referendum, 21% uh, high to low in, in sterling dollar. That is a material change. Those are material changes that will go into the, the underlying a cost or or, or revenue um, base if uh, if you're on on the on the on a beneficial side of a of, of a move, um, but it, it, the, the goalposts change very quickly. Uh, and so when you talk about risks remain, and we have to to live with this um, with crises in, in whatever form, and no matter how much we learn, um, would you? What are your thoughts on how? anyone could adapt to or, or do anything better from what we've learned um, with historical well, um, well I mean with yeah with historical events I, I mean first and foremost the, the Swiss National Bank was a textbook in what not to do uh, and authorities have learned from that in terms of they, that will never or should never be repeated if it is repeated it's only because of incompetence and not because that that's what the 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 outcome uh, that the central bank was looking for. But clearly, in terms of how do we cope, we are going to have to potentially accept that there are parts of, of the supply chain, again, going back to this point with regard to FX, that require a greater degree of flexibility. And by flexibility, what that means is there needs to be a larger margin uh, involved. So that means higher prices, potentially. Just on because cost, other- yeah, yeah, you're spot on there, uh, and it's a conversation that I'm having a lot with with clients at the moment who are looking at alternative sources of financing again to diversify risk. If you're a corporate and you're importing from certain locations, you don't want all your eggs in one basket, so you pay more to get that diversification. I, you know, some some country has to lock down for whatever reason, and I hate that we're using locked down in our vocabulary now, but it, it, it's here and it's real, um, that, that their business doesn't stop overnight. Uh, um, you know, your case in point with regards to um, car manufacturing, there was a case where I think Thailand in 2003, maybe, or 2013, I might, it might be a decade out, but there, there were, uh, you know, um, abnormal rainfall, there was floods, and quite a few UK car manufacturers sourced chips from Thailand, the world's biggest exporter of uh, hard drives and, and, and chips. Um, you know, 
we, we saw flood defences built. On the back of every one of these historical events, we, we've seen a, a kind of an evolution in society of how we will cope and handle these. So do you think that, that yes, look, these one-off events are, are never going to go away, but do you think that future impacts of such events, given what we can do now, what we know we can do as, as a, a you know, monetary policy, fiscal policy, um, even just a societal policy and looking after each other. Do you think we're getting a lot better at handling these crises? Uh, yes. Well, I, I'll, I'll just interrupt there, Parker. Yeah. I'd say sure. that, um, you know, the I, I think we were, in recent years, the, the, the focus has been too much on being efficient. Um, and by being efficient, it means you lose the diversification of, of goods and, and capital and so on that you've been speaking about, which we've since learned are virtues in the whole process. Um, and what does this mean? I think it means that um, preparing for risk in all its forms is not cost-free. Uh, and that's another thing we need to acknowledge. Um, it's by, by diversifying your, your su supplies of goods and capital, uh, you raise the cost by, by hedging against possible um, material exchange rate moves, it, it will cost. Um, and, and that's a part of life. And businesses and also the investment community uh, need to accept that fact and, and not punish businesses who do the sensible thing and do the diversification and obviously have to wear the ensuing costs. I, I mean, I'd just add into that that if you don't have a flexibility or greater flexibility within prices, and again, I mean inflation, what you'll have instead is volatility in terms of business operations. So businesses coming into and then leaving the markets because it becomes economic and then uneconomic to operate. So without that flexibility, and I think, Ben, you hit the nail on the head there, preparing for risk is not cost-free. Ultimately, we have to accept that reality because if we don't accept that reality, then what we accept instead is sub-economic outcomes with regard to the volatility in business operations. I'm conscious of time and some of the, uh, you know, we could talk for a long time on what we, what we don't know. <laughs> but how do you think, just wrapping up, that um, what's the take-home message? What could corporates and financial institutions do or, or start looking at going forward to make sure that we do get this consistency? And when I talk about consistency, consistency in pricing, consistency in businesses being around from one day to the next. What can we all do um, to look at how we manage our own expectations of how we would cope in these uncertain times? Well, I mean, all, all businesses thrive on certainty, don't they? And um, the very topic that we've covered today is uncertainty. So how does a certainty-loving uh, organism uh, deal with this uncertainty? Um, and there's, there's a number of ways of doing it, but it's, I, I suppose, summed up in one word, it's prepare. Prepare, and, and that means um, prepare in your supply lines, prepare in your, your suppliers of capital, uh, prepare in your hedging. but Expect the unexpected, um, and uh, you and 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 expect also to have to pay the insurance premium to to cover that risk, so that you, the the certainty loving organisation, can can be around for 
um, many years yet, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's something that I say a lot in seminars and things like that. You don't buy house insurance hoping that your house burns to the ground. You buy it in the uncertain, you know, in in the in the certainty that there is a risk. But that's why you're you're, you're acting in your uh, in the way that you're acting because you're acting rationally on the risk that a certain number of houses burn to the ground. Um, every year through no fault of the owners in, in a lot of senses and with, with with fx it's exactly the same with these unknown events unknown timing unknown like where they're they're going to land and everything you need to be as as well prepared and i think that's a great word ben as well prepared as you possibly can be uh, and that means thinking about your business strategy just think about how that is going to adapt to an ever-changing world Thank you very much, Neil. I think that brings us to a, a very natural and neat conclusion. Uh, thank you, everyone, for, for tuning in and listening and uh, join us again soon for the next instalment. <laughs>